Hi, and welcome to another episode of Our Memphis History. I'm Mark White, Joe Lowry sitting over there. Today we're very pleased to have Shelby County Mayor Lee Harris on the show. Today we're going to talk about all things Ida B. Wells. While Miss Wells was not born in Memphis, she was born in Holly Springs in 1862. She definitely made her mark in the Memphis area and in the Mid-South. Mayor Harris, thanks for being here. Uh, well, thanks for having me, and uh, it's, it's, it's great to have an opportunity to talk about one of the most famous Memphians, Ida Wells. As you say, not born in Memphis, but, you know, lived here for, um, you know, um, all of her early adulthood, didn't move out of Memphis until 1892, and uh, and was a Miss Southerner. Uh, so, you know, her, her childhood and her, her birth, and as you say, Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is not very far down the road, and I've uh, been there several times, and and, uh, you know, in fact, recently I went down there and uh, was able to find, after a lot of searching, uh, the, the gravestone for her parents, that her parents are uh, buried together, uh, James Wells and her mom, um, um, uh, I think Elizabeth Wells, um, are, are buried together down there. And it's, a, it's an interesting uh, grave site. It's on the top of a hill, a very, very prominent uh, site. And a relatively new gravestone, given that you know they died in 1878, so a long time ago. So at some point, it had to be replaced. But not very far from her gravesite is the gravesite of um, Confederate veterans. So there's a real, real uh, elaborate gravesite for the Confederate veterans, probably about 15 feet away from the from the gravesite of Ida Wells's parents, who of course who were who were enslaved. Both her parents were enslaved, and that's how they met. They met on in you know as um, as slaves on different plantations, two plantations that came together, and that's how they met. And uh, so it's just you know it's a, it's, a, it's just one of those things. I mean, it's just like Hamwood Cemetery here. You know, it's just, it's one of those places where you can learn a lot of history. And, and, and Holly Springs has its own Elmwood Cemetery, where you know you can you can find the gravestones of people who you know existed. Uh, 150 years ago, uh, and you can you know learn about their lives after getting their names and so forth. So that was that was pretty cool, and um, you know went out there recently and found that. So that was pretty cool. But yeah. thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I believe her parents passed away from yellow fever in '78, uh, along with a younger sister. I believe it was. Yeah, that's exactly right. I so it's a. A son, uh, their their youngest son, Stanley. Okay. So yeah, 1878, and passed away from yellow fever. Of course, at that time, no one knew what caused yellow fever. Everybody, of course, thought it was just the smell in the air. That's if you right. had a foul odor yeah, in the air, <laughs> that must be it. And so their strategies to combat yellow fever at that time, of course, responded to how they perceived it. If it's a foul odor in the air, then you know, how do you dissipate the foul odor where you fire a gun in the air or fire a cannon or right. you, bur bur you burn something, burn something, right. burn, burn something up. So they, you know, curse. Those, those, are, those are the strategies they had. Didn't realize that the yellow fever, of course, was spread by the mosquito and uh, didn't, didn't understand that. In fact, it took a long time uh, to understand that yellow fever was spread by mosquitoes. So we're well into the 20th century before people understood that yellow fever was spread by mosquitoes and, uh, and how to cure it, uh, or more or less cure it by way of vaccine. And so without that, you know, everybody just either suffered from it or escaped from it, quarantined themselves, or, um, or died from it, or died from it, or waited till the first frost. Obviously, the mosquitoes can't survive in the winter, so you'd have to, you could wait till, the, wait till the winter comes and wait till all the mosquitoes are dead. Yeah. Just thought it smelled better in the winter. <laughs> it went away. It went away right? Yes, that's, that's an interesting thing. They should have noticed. They should have figured out. Wait a males There's no in the winter are the same. What prompted you to choose this subject? So I think I started getting into American history during the pandemic. I think during the pandemic, 
I think everybody was looking for a hobby, something new to, to do. And for me, it became American history. And so if you get into American history, you probably land at the country's founding uh, or you land at the country's second founding. So either you land at 1776 or you land at you know uh, 1861 to 1865, the Civil War. So either you become a Civil War kind of uh, nut, if I can say that on your <laughs> podcast, you know, or you, or like I say, you become an American Revolutionary kind of buff. And for me, I landed at the Civil War, and um, you know, got into that more and more. And when you get into that period. You start to think about your community, and uh, one of the people, she wasn't involved in the Civil War at all, but she was born into the Civil War, and she was a Memphian. So Ida B. Wells was born in 1862. That's in the midst of the Civil War, and so, you know, my attention quickly moved to her. But I'm really interested in the Civil War, too, so fascinated by that. And I haven't been to enough battlegrounds uh, yet, but, you know, I've been to Gettysburg, but you need a, long, you need a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, to go to Gettysburg, and I didn't realize how much time you really need, so I just haven't uh, been able to set aside the amount of time you really need to Gettysburg, because you need at least a couple days uh, to go there and experience that, um, and, you know, been to the places around here, Corinth, Jackson, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, those are probably, well, Corinth, Jackson, seems like I'm missing one. Oh, Vicksburg, Vicksburg, Vicksburg. of course. Vicksburg, Vicksburg is, is probably the most important Civil War site in our area, been to Vicksburg a, a few times and so forth. So, you know, you kind of get into that and from there to, into Ida B. Wells. Yeah. And Vicksburg is amazing. So if anybody hadn't been to Vicksburg, right, that's a it's, really incredible kind of place to go, incredible place to tour. And really, you yeah, taken yeah, the, yeah, important. Hiking trails down there. Mm -hmm. If you grew up and you were a Boy Scout in this community, a rite of passage was to go to Vicksburg and walk those trails. And, and you'll never forget it because it, your, your feet are not used to that and it's rough so i haven't done that i'm looking forward to that and uh i haven't been to shiloh uh yet and I, i've been to fort pillow uh, a few times and uh, again that's another kind of place um, that has a lot of story uh there and they set up on their trail so if you hike the, the fort pillow trail they set up a kind of um, uh, um, a little present for you at the end because they you know kind of build some 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 uh ground, uh, what do you call it, groundworks, so you can get kind of an experience at the end of their trail. So, um, no, so you know, you kind of get into it, and like you say, once you get into it, you know, history is it's just a set of stories, and I think you, you, it's hard not to, to not to like it and well, enjoy and it. one story leads to the next exactly. story, to the next person. And yeah, exactly of all the things that you exactly. have studied pertaining to her time in Memphis, what is most prolific of all of her escapades, and she had many, so... So that's a great question. So, um, you know, what's really intriguing to me right now, I think, is Memphis Massacre, trying to understand that a little bit. And she was a young girl at that time and wasn't in Memphis, but it was such national news that I'm confident that she grew up with the story of the Memphis Massacre. So I'm trying to understand that period a little bit better. Uh, you know, she had a, a, a lynching that drove her out of town when she was, you know, a young woman. Of course, that was in 1892, and she leaves Memphis and leaves the South and never comes back for, you know, several decades, two, two or three decades before she comes back to the South. So trying to understand that, there are a lot of things I don't understand about that. 
that, that lynching uh, in 1892. There's a lot of things I don't understand about the Memphis Massacre in 1866. Really trying to understand those things. But as, as you said, um, it's, it's all kind of tied together. You know, once you go to Fort Pillow and, you know, learn that story and hear that story from a whole bunch of different perspectives, then you go to Elmwood and you see Gideon Pillow, he's buried in Elmwood. <laughs> right, right. You say, well, well, that's interesting. <laughs> right? that, just a, another Memphis connection. And I, there's a, you know, a Memphis connection with, with the Memphis Massacre and, uh, and Fort Pillow. So Fort Pillow is where Nathan Bedford Forrest attacked uh, that, 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 that Union Fort and uh, executed the black soldiers that were there, about 300 black soldiers that were there. And, and uh, a lot of what we can find say they surrendered and, Fort Pil- and um, he executed them anyway. And you learn that a lot of, and, and of course in the Civil War, a lot of these people are not buried. They're not buried in identifiable graves, right? So that happens much later when the war ends and you try to go back and bury these folks and you bury them in graves. But the people that had to bury all those black soldiers at Fort Pillow are the soldiers in South Memphis, right? The soldiers uh, at, at Fort Pickering, the soldiers in Memphis. So they're, they're, bur- they're burying all the dead. They know all about Fort Pillow. They know all about Nathan Bedford Forrest. They, they, they had to bury the dead eventually. And... Uh, Eventually, they are, they are out of the service, and they're walking around Memphis wearing their uniform proudly, probably with the chip on their shoulder for a variety of different reasons, having fought we, a war. We had a thing called the Memphis Grays. Yeah. We had about five or six groups of former Civil War people who didn't want to give up, so they formed in companies and and. It was all over the South. I mean, what just in Memphis? They had it all over Mississippi, and and occasionally sheriffs would use these guys to quell events that were happening even in the 1870s and 1880s. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it wasn't right, but it was it was done. That's what was done. But we all know it was not right. Mm-hmm. So, what of what she did excites you the most? Well, I'm excited about <laughs> a lot of it. I think she has some really formative events. Yeah. We've sort of touched on uh, the yellow fever. That was really formative for her, and it was really a turning point in her life and one of those occasions where you can see someone who really has a lot of natural strength and resilience. And so both her parents died of yellow fever in 1878. She's 16 years old. And so she is instantly an orphan, and she's from a huge family. And you know, I can't recall right now how many kids, but let's say five or six kids. And those siblings had to be taken care of, and so she had a decision to make to let the usual social service apparatus take hold, which was not what it is today. It was basically hand the kids out to folks that might take them in, or for her to step up and be the new mom uh, to that family at 16 years old. And so she decided to step up and take care of her other siblings and to get a job. So she begins to work immediately at 16. Mm-hmm. She was literate. So she was, this is the first generation of blacks that could learn to read, right? Her generation. She's born in 1862. Right? This, is, this, this is it. And so she learns to read as a young child. And because she is in the first generation of blacks that learns to read, that means she's eligible to become a teacher. And so at 16, she becomes a teacher, starts working every day, traveling up and down dirt roads to rural Mississippi so that she could earn a little money, take care of her family, and uh, she left the kids in the care of another person while she taught. She did that for two years, and and then she moved to Memphis and did the same thing, worked in a rural area outside of Memphis, uh, Woodstock. Uh, So that just, I mean, I think that that little bit of a story at 16 years old, you know, 16 to 20 years old, 
is really, really emblematic of the, of the strength that she had and, uh, you know, just how people overcame challenges. I always say about the African-American community, uh, it's a community of survivors. I mean, it's a community that survived you know, invasion and the Middle Passage and slavery and Reconstruction, uh, Jim Crow, uh, on and on to the Civil Rights era and on, on and on to today. And so her story is really a story of survival, too, and I think it really starts at the yellow fever uh, epidemic um, and, and surviving that and, uh, and, uh, and taking care of those kids. She's an amazing person because the average white person of the day was a segregationist and they had, their parents had been and their parents had been so it was normal for the, her peers and even those who came after her on the white side of the community to be total segregationists. And she had to deal with that. Well, she fought against it, right? She yeah, fought against yeah. it because, um, you know, so Jim Crow arrives as she, you know, becomes a woman, a young woman, and she fought against it as best she could. Uh, so there's a lot of changing changes happening in America because, you know, obviously during the slave era, we've got formal separation. So there's no, or, or we've got, you know, kind of formal caste system. So there's no, Real reason to have, have rules about segregation, you gotta, because you gotta, gotta have a whole system. So for a while there, most of the rules were rules around genders, right? How how the genders interact, right? You know, you know, even during the Civil War, people have if, to fake their fake it to get into it. If you're a white woman. women, yeah. didn't have the right to vote. White right. women were considered right. secondary people. I mean, you know, their husbands were the boss, and they didn't have a say in anything. So not only was she was a, was a race thing, but it was a gender thing too. So she had two things against her that she had to fight through in order to accomplish her goals. Yeah, and that's the, exactly right. The way mm -hmm. she fought too was also writing. I mean, mm -hmm. she was a journalist. She brought she brought the than the sword. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the well, she brought uh, you know attention to all of this by writing pamphlets and articles, and that she was part owner of a, a newspaper at one point, and uh, her pamphlet on. Uh, lynching was shared everywhere. That was her first big, large. Uh, yeah, lynchings were every day. Mm -hmm. That was an everyday thing back mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. and and no one gave it any thought, mm -hmm. yeah. unless you were the person being lynched. Yeah. Well, and that had to do with the, the you mentioned earlier the massacres. The Curve Massacre was mm -hmm. another one that was in South Memphis, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't remember the date. I'll look the date up, but. Um, that again spurred her on. I think that's actually the one you were referring to that made her leave Memphis. She was like, "Okay, I'm done. I'm, I, yeah. I can't do this anymore." Yeah. Moving to Chicago. Yeah. So that yeah, that's the one that that forced her to move to Chicago. The one that happens at the so-called curve, mm -hmm. and so that's at the intersection of Mississippi and Walker Avenue. Uh, there is obviously a curve there now. And uh, they say there's a sign there to talk about what happened at that location, but I've never been able to find the historical sign at that that's location. Probably that's very interesting that you, very interesting you brought that up because I'm in the middle of a project right now that we're documenting every one of those for the Memphis historical. Mm -hmm. Unless it's been so. swiped by. Some we'll, group of hoodlums who swipe signs, we will which we're having that problem. But yes, there is supposed to be a historical marker on that site. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll tell you, I haven't seen it. Haven't it seen might it. be there, and I it's missed it. Possible, it's but <laughs> but in any event, that that was a popular location. This is just down the street from Lamorno and College, where it sits today. And there were a couple grocery stores there. And uh, one of the grocery stores was white owned. One of the grocery stores was black owned. 
and uh, there was competition among the grocers. Uh, and, uh, and, and one day that competition really uh, um, you know, kind of tumbled out into something bigger. Right. One, of the, one of the kids, his name was Cornelius Hurst, so of Irish background, there was some conflict between Irish, people of Irish background and African Americans at that time. Sure. So Cornelius Hurst is playing or doing whatever kids do, and there's a black kid playing or doing whatever kids do, and those two kids get into a fight. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a 19th century fight, so it's the kind of fights that yeah. we, we can imagine fight. kids get into. <laughs> right. So the, 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 the lives are not on the line, but it, 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 was, a, it was a fight among kids. Right. But because of the racial dynamics and because of the changing environment in Memphis at that time, right, Memphis has a substantial black population, substantial. Yeah. And because of that, it becomes kind of a, the, the adults get into it. So now the white adults and the black adults, the police are called. At some point, the police try to serve a warrant on the workers and the proprietor of the black grocery store. When they try to serve that warrant, well, the proprietor, proprietor and workers of that black grocery store fire, somebody is hit, and then, people, and then a lot of the blacks are arrested. So not just the folks at the grocery store, blacks all around everywhere. There are dozens of blacks that are arrested. But the focus is on you know, the three blacks that uh, were cons considered to be the instigators. You know, they, they were a clerk of the store, and one was the owner of the store. One was a good friend of Ida B. Wells. And uh, so they're arrested, they're held in jail, go back to these militias. There's a militia company, a black militia company. Tennessee Rifles is the black militia company. The Tennessee Rifles uh, says, well, we, we, there hadn't been a lynching in Memphis, by the way. So there's no, been, been no lynchings in Memphis, right? So Memphis is lynch-free, yeah. but everybody knows this is about to be our first Could lynching. Be. Could be our first lynching. So the Tennessee Rifles, the black militia company, sets up, guards the, guards the jail, it says there's not going to be a lynching on all watch. These are a lot of Civil War veterans because a lot of black soldiers participated in the Civil War. So they set up, and um, they don't set up for long because the judge <laughs> issues an order and said, you know, blacks in Memphis more or less can't have guns anymore. Or we're going to put a temporary injunction on blacks having guns because everybody realized what was about to happen, that this sure. was going to be our first lynching. It couldn't happen and, with them. Yeah, yeah, and this was going to be a huge deal. So there's all Ooh. sorts of actions, including this judge's order. It basically basically disbands the Tennessee Rifles. They go home. They go home, and uh, sooner or later, you know, uh, you know, a dozen masked men, or maybe not masked, I can't recall, but a dozen, well, a dozen guys break into that jail. They're saying, we're not going to have it. We've had it. Mm -hmm. We're tired of this. Right. Yeah. We're going to just know. Yeah, they break them out in the middle of the night right. Right. and shot them. Right. And one of them is a great friend of Ida B. Wells and her family, Thomas Moss. He had a lot of connections to Ida B. Wells. He was a pretty upstanding citizen, the owner of the grocery store, or one of the investors in the grocery store. He was also a mail carrier. And the mail carrier was a really good job at that time, really connected to his church, had a young family. So he was really an upstanding, upstanding citizen. And so it really changed Ida's worldview as it changed a lot of people's worldview about you know the status of blacks in America at that time because you know at that time there was some lynchings happening you know here and there elsewhere but there was at least a small minority belief that it was as against lawbreakers that people who were doing the wrong thing were getting lynched and that it wasn't necessarily just only about race and then you get this lynching in Memphis with these three people, one of whom was clearly very upstanding, and now it changes how everybody viewed it, uh, particularly Ida B. Wells, and now she knows that this lynching is not about law and order, it's not about somebody who you know, was, was doing something wrong, it's, it's driven 
driven because of uh, race. And so she writes about that, and she gets on the wrong side of a lot of people with her writing. And she has to flee Memphis at that point, or, or, or not come back. She was traveling at that point anyway, but she didn't come back from her travels. Yeah. Can you imagine how difficult that was of a life for her at the time? And how how strong she had to have been to take that event, and she did write about it, obviously. Uh, but that was the the impetus again for her to, to leave Memphis. That's a big. I don't know that she necessarily moved around all that easily back then. So that was a that was a large thing for her to make that decision. No, that's right. So she moves to Chicago, gets married, has children, mm-hmm. um, continues on with all of her um, advocacy for for all types of, any type of racism she was against, obviously, but yeah. it was an interesting time in her life. Yeah, it takes her two or three years to end up in Chicago, because she has to, she's in New York, she's already kind of traveling, so she's on the Eastern Seaboard, and she uh, gives her first public speech, because remember, we're shifting. So right now, today, we can think about Black Lives Matter and 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 the chief spokesperson or influencers on that topic, and we can and our mind might drift toward people like Ben Crump, uh, or uh, or the folks like Ben Crump. But at this time, we're moving out of um, slavery, right? The chief spokesperson for slavery, the most famous person in America, is clearly Frederick Douglass. He's the most famous black famous black person. He's the most famous black person in America, and he's the most famous black person for America because he speaks up as against the most important issue in black America, which is slavery. And so when slavery falls, the black political agenda is all about lynching. And so Ida finds herself as the most important spokesperson on lynching overnight in the entire country. Because the Memphis lynching, which again, there hadn't been a lynching in Memphis in a very long time, and there's buildup. So there's all kinds of national articles about it. Everybody says, well, this, what's going to happen? We got these people going to get lynched, right, right. you know, so forth. So it becomes national news when they get lynched. There's protests all over America, same as in the, if you can imagine the George Floyd case, where there are protests all over America after George Floyd's killing. There are protests all over America after the Memphis, Memphis lynching. Ida B. Wells is already a writer, an owner of a newspaper, and a close personal friend of one of those lynched. So she flees to a larger platform, as it were, all up and down the eastern seaboard, ends up in New York. And the New Yorkers, where they just had the largest protest in America over the Memphis lynching, right? They had the largest protest ever in black America. Over the Memphis lynching, they say, well, we want to hear from somebody who knows about it. Ida B. Wells gives a speech, her first public speech in New York. And she's not a public speaker. She's a young woman. She, she can't speak publicly. She's very, very nervous. She's crying as she's speaking because she's talking about the death of, a friend. of her friend. Yeah. So she is crying. Uh, and she gives a speech, and all the New Yorkers are crying. It is, it is a dramatic moment. Mm-hmm. And so she gets off the stage, and she thinks she did a terrible job because she's crying profusely uh, as a result of this. She thinks she did a terrible job. And the organizers of it said, that was the best speech we've ever heard. And she becomes a national star, arguably the most famous black woman in America for you know basically the good portion of her life from that point forward. That speech becomes the, the, um, the fodder for her first book or pamphlet, which is Southern uh, Horrors. So she gets a, an immediate contract with Thomas Fortune. He runs the most important newspaper in America, black newspaper in America, uh, the New York Age. He says, we got to write that speech now. Right. 
and we got to send it all across America. He publishes 10,000 copies of it. 10,000 was a lot at that time. I used to know how that compared to other people like Ulysses Grant when he wrote his memoir and other people. I think, you know, if you look at their runs, their runs was like 4,000 and everybody wanted to hear Ulysses Grant's take on the war and all the rest. And her run was the equivalent. It was like 10,000. So it was like a big deal back then. So he says, we're going to publish 10,000. We're going to sell 10,000 of these things, your speech. And uh, they do. And they sell 10,000. She becomes one of the famous, most famous black women in America. And uh, as you say, after that speech, she stays there a few more months, you know, kind of travels. Well, she travels to Europe because Europe now wants her. Yes. They want her to give this speech over and over again. So she spends a year or two traveling Europe, giving the same speech all over Europe, and then comes back and then she settles in Chicago. She had lots of benefactors in in Britain as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine the people that were against her were almost afraid of her. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, her reach was pretty, pretty large, pretty yeah. wide at that point. Well, the, you know, her reach was very wide. Uh, the Memphians were probably afraid of her. Uh, they, you know, they, you know, kind of ran her out, ran her out of town. Although, you know, there's a little bit of uh, intrigue there. I found when I was doing some of this research. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the story is they ran her out of town, and I think that's ninety percent true. <laughs> right. But I do think there's another ten percent there. So she was always leading. And that, and, and leading among that first generation, so she grows up as one of the first people that can read, which is a very, very interesting place to be. Mm-hmm. And so she immediately kind of realizes she needs to be in a larger place. Mm-hmm. She comes to Memphis, and uh, and she immediately in Memphis realizes she needs to even a larger platform. And she owns a newspaper and understands newspaper economics and travels around the country. Mm-hmm. So she writes to New York before the lynching ever happens. She's writing to New York and saying things like. You know, I'd like to be in New York one day. <laughs> you know, I'd like, the I'd like out I, there. Yeah, I'd like to work. You know, for yeah. your paper one day. Sure. So she's writing and forming relationships with the most famous people that existed at that time. Right? She obviously meets Frederick Douglass. She befriends Frederick Douglass. He's he's writing her endorsement letters and introductory letters. She kind of knows where the pieces are. And even on the lynching side, the other piece of evidence I'll say just for that ten percent is her family because of a lot of reasons. They were actually a, 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 a relatively well-to-do black family, given the circumstances. Remember, she learned to read. They put her in school. Mm-hmm. That was unusual. Right. They you, also... You, up until yeah. uh, the end of the war, it was against the law. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. So this, If you were a white person and you trained a, a slave member of your organization, if you tried to taught them to read, write, or do anything like that, you were arrested. Yeah. And that lasts for quite a long time. I mean, there's there's a right. lot of people that want to learn to read, and there's high demand for learning, but she is one of the first to learn. The point is, is that her family was well-to-do in the sense that they made sure she learned to read when she was a young child, and they owned their own home in Holly Springs, which right. is, was rare. Like, there weren't a lot, there were almost no blacks that owned their own home. Yeah. And so when this is all happening, she sells the home. So that's the most interesting record. Yeah. So she sells the home yeah, before the threats occur. Okay. She sells her own family home, which is kind of, I'm not coming back to Memphis. Right, yes. Yeah, she, she sells the home. She orchestrated, um, this didn't just happen by chance. I mean, she definitely had a plan and knew what she wanted to do. And in reality, she was sneaky smart. <laughs> I think she was very smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was yeah. obviously smart. Yeah. One, one of the other things, that. I mean, just talking about, just kind of being intentional about your career, again, the, the way her, she's written a biography, her biography is Crusade for Justice, and she describes in her biography that she was teaching and she got fired. Yeah, she did. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. 
right? That's a really, really great story to get fired for your views. And that's what she said. She said she wrote about the problems with the school board. She wrote about the racism in the school system, and she got fired for that. But if you, you know, do a little bit of the ancestry stuff or whatever the websites are called, where you can look at the newspapers, I guess newspaper newspapers.com and all the rest, yeah. and you follow it year to year, it always says she was a teacher one year, and then it says she resigned. Right. I hear, I hear both. You're it says right. that she resigned, yeah. and so you know, was it a resignation or was it a termination? I'll take her version of it that it was a termination, but it is one of those things where you know you're writing your own biography because that's where it comes from. It comes from the biography. Exactly. Her and she's the writer, mm-hmm. and she's saying I was fired for this for the essays, but the newspaper accounts of it. Ida Wells resigned this year. Ida Wells decided not to do I it this year. I would tend more to believe yeah. her than yeah. the media. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. No, no offense to the media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and her uh, autobiography was actually uh, published after her death. I mm. think her daughter actually published that. So. Way after her death. Yeah. Uh, and written basically a year or two before her death. Like at the end of her life, she writes her just, autobiography. Just didn't get a chance to finish Yeah, and when she writes her autobiography toward the end of her life, she knows her place in history at that point. True. She knows that she was one of the most famous black women in America. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know whether we will be talking about her per se, but she knows she had a real uh, important impact on the course of America. She's sure of that. Yeah, that's so she's not writing point. it at 30. You know, Frederick Douglass writes his autobiography. He writes five, I think. And he writes his, <laughs> he, he, writes, writing. He, he writes them at different points of his life. Right. And it changes completely. Sure. Right? When, he writes him as a, when he writes it as a young man, yeah. The way he writes that autobiography is so different as he writes it at the end of his life. It's a very different autobiography. Yeah. Um, That's but an yeah. interesting point yeah. that, that it was written toward the end of her life and she knew her, her yeah. point in history at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So during the time that Ida B. Wells was in Memphis, she wrote for this paper that was housed at Beale Street Baptist Church mm-hmm. on Beale Street, so about a block east of the entertainment district, if everybody's familiar with, with where that is. And there's a statue out there now. It's been put out there for her. Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, she was, uh, work, you know, teaching and writing, and one of the publications she ends up writing for was an outgrowth of a newsletter um, that, out of the Bill Street Baptist Church. Eventually, that newsletter turns into a newspaper. It's the Free Speech and Headline Headlight. It was in Marion, Arkansas, and it was moved from Marion, Arkansas to Memphis. And again, keeps up the publishing tradition associated with Bill Street Baptist, which is you know one of the, which was the most famous black church in Memphis at that time. There were only a handful of black churches, but that was that was the most famous black church, and you usually had the most influential black preacher at its helm. And so that's where her statue is in Memphis. It's along Bill Street near Bill Street Baptist Church. And that Bill Street Baptist Church, at least, the, is still standing, and they're still having services there. And so that's got to be the oldest uh, black church in Memphis. I mean, Collins Chapel has been around a long time, So, and, but it's either Collins Chapel and Bill Street Baptist are among the right. oldest black churches in, in Memphis. I believe That's right. you're right. That's absolutely right. Uh, there was another event that we talked about a little bit, and that was the train ride that she took that turned out to be quite eventful, not just your normal train ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was uh, almost, ta- almost thrown off or maybe even thrown off. I don't know the entire story on that. Yeah, so that's right. So remember now, we're, the trains were segregated by gender, right, at first. For a long time, they were segregated by gender. gender. Okay. Right? A lot of these rules and so forth 
that we think of now as kind of racial rules, yes, they existed, but they came after gender rules. <laughs> so they were gender rules. Okay. That's what mattered most. Mm. And so there was women cars, which would be a first-class car, mm. and then there were other cars, which would be smoker cars, places where you could smoke and you know so forth and use foul language. And so... <laughs> She wanted to ride in the women's car always, or the first class. Women first class is about the same thing. And she used the trains often. We had, they had regular trains and street cars. She commuted all the way to Woodstock, which is a community very near Memphis, right outside of Memphis, so she could teach. And America's going through a change, right? Do the gender rules matter or do race rules matter? Yeah. And so we go through the change from the gender rules to the race rules. And so it starts something like, Maybe black women shouldn't sit in the women's car. And then maybe it doesn't matter who sits in the first class women's car as long as they're white. And so she's challenging that. She constantly sits in the women's car because she, you know, it's the Victorian era. She wants to be treated with all the pomp of a Victorian woman. Right. She sits in the woman's car and they try to kick her out. Not on one occasion, not on two occasions, all the time. Yeah. This is a fight many women like her, particularly black women, were fighting all the time. And these were physical fights in a lot of cases. And so one of the biggest physical fights, they try to take her out. She's biting the clerk's hand. <laughs> She's fighting him. Other passengers are trying to get her out of that women's car. And eventually, she just leaves the train. Now, she sues the train company. And there are a few lawsuits like this around the country. She sues the train company. She wins. And then on appeal, she loses. A lot of the people, remember, all these people are, recon, are, are, you know, are coming up in the reconstruction area. Some are, are, are reconstructed, some are unreconstructed. So it depends on the judge. So you might have a judge that is fair-minded. You might have a judge that is a veteran of the Civil War on the Confederate side and says no. So she eventually, she loses her case on appeal because of that history of the Confederacy and so forth. And a lot of these people are veterans. And they say it's fine. So these cases keep happening. Hers is one of the first. And they keep happening until we get to what one of the most famous cases and most important cases in America, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is a train case. So Plessy versus Ferguson is a case that says separate but equal is okay in America. That's, which, which we know is not true. Yeah, yeah, no such yeah. thing as separate but equal. It's right. never been true. Yeah. But that's the first yeah. case. case. That, is, that is the case. That's a cop-out that mm -hmm. white guys have come out with just to make it sound normal. Right. But if you're on the other side, it's, you're not normal. Right? Yeah. But it is the case right. that establishes the legal principle of segregation that we live with through until 19, what, you know, 60s. Yeah. <laughs> right? That, that our education system can be separate but equal, so-called, that everything can be separate but equal. You know, my parents at the movie theaters, all over the place, everything can be separate but equal because of one case, Plessy versus Ferguson, which is a train case. And it is a train case about the same thing she did as an early woman mm -hmm. to say, I don't want to see the train segregated. She lost in Tennessee. There were a handful of these cases uh, elsewhere in the country, and one of them was Plessy versus Ferguson. That, and hers made it to the Tennessee Supreme Court. The Plessy versus Ferguson makes it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And U.S. Supreme Court, again, I, mean, I can't remember the justice's name. I should know it, but at this moment, I can't think of his name. Yeah. But he's also grows out of that Confederate experience, mm -hmm. and he writes one of the worst opinions for you know in American history right. to say, nope, I believe separate but equal is fine. Right. 
and they're all aware of all these train cases, and somebody has to decide. And he finally, oh, it's Roger Taney, I guess. I wonder who her first he attorney was, because at the time, and if you read uh, Green P. Hamilton, G.P. Hamilton's book called The Bright Side, uh, he wrote that here, and he listed a bunch of black attorneys that were absolutely fine, well-respected by black and white attorneys and judges. We had some of the best black attorneys here in 1900 as anywhere in the world. Yeah. That's exactly right. I would like to know who her attorney was. Yeah. I know that she, she started, I believe, with a black firm and then went with a white firm, hoping that that would help her case. And like you said, she did actually win her case, but then it was overturned. Yeah, I think it was something like that. She started yeah. with one firm and, uh, you know, right. it went a certain way, and then she changed her firms. Yeah. Uh, but there were great black attorneys, and one of her... One of her landlords, so she's moving around when she's living in Memphis. You know, she's a young woman and, you know, has not a lot of resources, so she's staying in various different housing situations. She has an aunt that lives here for a while, but her aunt moves, and so she has to move around. And so she ends up living with a lawyer, which also kind of um, creates this knowledge of lawsuits and suing and so forth. Now, he wasn't her lawyer, and I can't think of his name as I sit here, yeah. but she lives with him. He lives, on, he lives, you know, South Memphis. He lives on a prominent street. That's a story. Yeah, yeah, and he lived next. You know, he lived near Robert Church. You know, Robert Church lived in, you know, in South Memphis. Robert Church's house is ultimately burned down. We can't see it anymore, but he lived near Robert Church, a few houses down from Robert Church, and basically in his basement lived Ida B. Wells. Lived Ida B. Wells in his basement. He lived on. Trying to think of the street. Yeah, I should know it too. Lauderdale was it Lauderdale? Lauderdale, about the four hundred block. Yeah. Uh, which was yeah. a very affluent part of town, both yeah. black and white. Kate, mm-hmm. Katie, Senator McKellar lived three houses down mm-hmm. from Church's house, but Church's house did not burn until 10 years later. Mm-hmm. It burned during, every house on the street was vacant. When, mm-hmm. that, when they burned that house, they burned it during a, a, a fire chief's conference here in town. So a lot of people get that confused and they say, well, you know, Crump came in and burned his house. Well five people had lived in his house before they even set the house on fire. They set the house on fire when they were tearing all the houses oh, yeah. down yeah. To, to make those apartments that are in there now. Mm-hmm. So. But it would be nice to be able to see his house. Yeah, and Church has an you know, interesting story because if I recall, you know, he was in the Battle of Memphis, jumped off of the boat. You know, the Battle of Memphis is on the, on the river. He jumps off the boat. <laughs> swims to shore <laughs> and makes Memphis his home. Right, and, and, and makes Memphis his home, yeah. uh, which is you know a, a fascinating tale. And Robert Church is from Holly Springs too, so Robert Church has that connection to Ida B. Wells because they're both from Holly Springs. They both end up in Memphis. They're both of mixed race origin, um, although uh, well, how, uh, Ida for both her parents were black, but she's recorded as mulatto because yeah. her father was mulatto. Yeah. But the point is that they they both have that 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 mixed ancestry, both come from Holly Springs. And when Ida B. Wells gets in trouble, and she doesn't have a lot of money, and she needs access to money, she reaches out to Robert Church, Church, the wealthiest black man in America. And he sends her money. He sends her money. That's how she's stuck in Chicago. What a nice friend to have. (laughs) He sends her money. Because he knows her... You know, he's, he's in her network yeah. because of the Holly Springs connection. Sure. And there are two Holly Springs people that just end up in Memphis, and uh, he wants to help her. So he's one of those guys out there and that helps her. it's ironic that E.H. Crump 
mm-hmm. came from Holly Springs, and he ended up in Memphis. That's right. Exactly right. Exactly oh, right. Yeah, Holly Springs. Yeah, they're turning out a lot of Memphis fans down there. It's not far. Yeah. It's not That's far. That's true. Yeah, fifty yeah. miles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this is this has been excellent. I appreciate you sure. being on the show. Anything that we want to cover before any other comments yeah, or anything? Anything, anything else that you want? is really bothering you that you really want to say that now's the time (laughs) bothering me well you know a couple things i don't know that i really really want to know i want to know much more about grocery stores in the 19th century because remember that memphis massacre is because of two grocery stores that are competing with each other and so i I want to know much more about that like just trying to understand the grocery store marketplace by then. Why, 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 why is everybody so interested in going to these grocery store, yeah. <laughs> stores all the time? So that's what I need to learn a lot more about. Yeah. And then the other one is, you know, the Memphis Massacre is about these soldiers walking around after they leave their, the service. Yeah. And they leave the service around April 30th. And as far as I can tell, everybody left yeah. their service April 30th, 1866. So there must be a reason. For so that. why is everybody leaving right. the U.S. Army right. on April thirtieth, eighteen sixty-six? Something's story, happening. Something's there's a story happening there, yeah. and it's your mission to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Why? Next, next podcast. Why? Yeah. Right. Right. So they they, right. they they just they just left hours hours before, and then the Memphis massacre is like May first. It basically happens right. within hours of them being discharged from the army. Yeah. But it's not just them being discharged. Everybody seems to be everywhere, kind of discharged around. around I'm going to remind you what I told you earlier, (laughs) and that is the role of a historian is to make sure the past has a future, and you're well on your way to being a historian. (laughs) (laughs) When you get to being a mayor. Thanks, thanks. Well, we appreciate you being on very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate it. We will talk to everybody next time. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks Thanks a lot.